We're starting something new today. And as we do that, I want to ask two quick questions. The first one's seemingly random. When was the very first time you realised what Queen Elizabeth II actually looked like? I'll come back to that. Second question. When you think of Christian encouragement, what do you have in mind? When we say something like, I just need to be encouraged right now, what is going through your head? What are you feeling in that? When you are going, I'm going to go around to that person and offer some encouragement to that person. What do you have in mind? Is it simply sympathy and a listening listening ear, ear to validate feelings and leave a conversation with nothing being any different? Or... Are you expecting something more engaging, something more challenging, something more correcting, something more propelling when a Christian encourages you? Is it a case of simply dumping our issues on another person or walking away with a completely different outlook on where you are at with Jesus? Sometimes my experience of expectation and sometimes my experience of personal delivery has probably been more the former and realising how short that can fall at times. Whereas the book of Hebrews is a letter of encouragement that actually is more of the latter experience. It doesn't always come across as encouragement. In fact, in one place, the audience are called children in a not-so-complimentary way. But we also know the author of this letter, who still remains unknown even today, makes it clear in chapter 13 that that's their intention. The author calls this letter a short letter of exhortation. And an exhortation is basically encouragement on steroids. It offers motivation, it offers courage, hope and strength to a person's spirit. But it also comes with a sense of urgent instruction and guidance in the mix as well. It doesn't just boost your confidence and tell you you can do this. It boosts your resolve and urges you. You have no choice but to do this. Exhortation leaves you compelled and propelled. And it appears that this is a group of believers. There is a group there that seems to need that sort of exhortation, that sort of encouragement in their life. We're sitting roughly three decades after Pentecost, 30 years of church life at least, And the letter's recipients appear to be what we call Hellenized Jews. 
people who were citizens or residents of pagan societies, people who spoke predominantly Greek, but would identify as practicing Orthodox Jews. They had once been ensconced in their faith of heritage. And their faith of heritage had a system that worked really well on a number of levels. They had the comfort of liturgy and ritual. In a pagan society that demanded tangible things, they actually had a a religious experience that could kind of match what other things were doing around there, sacrifices and temples, things like that, things you could touch and see and interact with. They had a tight-knit and somewhat exclusive community that all held the same views and that made their faith really easy to practice. They had entire liturgies and events designed for the whole family to participate in together. Think of the Passover. When your children ask what this meal means. They had a sense of belonging in this religious expression. And they could practice it with a degree of social acceptance. Judaism was a legally recognized religion in the pagan system they were under, in the, in the Roman Empire. And it even had some perks that other religions didn't have. They, they, through, they, the Romans had learned through bloodshed that the Jews didn't need to go and actually pay homage to Caesar and go, he's Lord, and do that stuff. It was a religious expression that one could practice without persecution and would actually help them in a number of ways in their lives. Their employment, their trade, their living arrangements, their marriages, all stuff like that could be affected and helped by being part of that community. But those participating in that religion were missing the most vital element of the God they were worshipping. They had religion, but they didn't have Christ. Who might even resonate with that description even today? I have religion, but I don't have Christ. I was raised in religion, but I didn't have Christ. I was raised in religion, but now I have Christ. One day, these Hellenized, Greek-speaking Jews were presented with a number of claims. One day, an evangelist would have crossed their path, spoken into their existence. It could have been Paul. We don't know the location. We don't know the audience's location here. It could have been Apollos. It could have been Barnabas. It could have been any one of these great church heroes of the first century. And any one of them could have walked in, perhaps the synagogue first, before they went to the marketplace. And perhaps they showed from the Old Testament how Jesus fitted that picture of what was being pointed to there, how Jesus fulfilled the Old old Covenant. Imagine only having the Old Testament in your hand and still being a witness for Jesus. These first century Jews were able to do that. Perhaps you went through the events like we did with Leviticus and go, look, 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 and look at Jesus. Look how it all fits. Maybe there was casual conversation over the lunchroom about expected messiahs and a Christian's able to go, 
I can give you a name to that identity now. Whatever it was, some of these Hellenized Jews rejected their current way of expressing their faith and did so in favour of following Jesus. And this would come at a cost that we simply don't take into account enough when we read the Scriptures. For these guys, the whole expression of faith changed. The sacrifices and the pilgrimages stopped. The calendar changed dramatically. Some things held deeply sacred were now only held loosely. Liturgy was different. There were new voices speaking into life and theology as they knew it. Community was lived out differently. And they were associating now with people they once stayed clear of. In fact, they were even being instructed and led in their faith by those people they once stood clear of. In many cases, a big safety net disappeared from under them. Families disowned them. Previous faith communities expelled and disassociated with them. The government had a different view of them. Rather than legitimise this new faith, they persecuted them and saw them as threats to the empire. And with all those things going on, the social opportunities would begin to dry up also. No more jobs for the boys. Because you were no longer one of them. Couldn't fit in a trade guild because of your Judaism history. Couldn't fit in other vocations either because of your lack of Jewish, because of your separation from Jewish history. Crazy. We're also roughly in the time when Nero was violently persecuting Christians in Rome here. We also know that there were tough hotspots all around the empire where this letter could and probably does apply. The law wasn't changing anytime soon and persecution would only get stronger. With all that going on, we learn from the recipients of this letter that being a Christian was tough and getting tougher, as it was for all Christians in the first century. To follow Christ and call him alone Lord was as treasonous as it could get. Christianity was a dangerous faith in the first century. Then and now, leaving religion and following Christ will have a cost. Then and now, it would be a completely natural thing to look at how hard a real and genuine faith is. particularly when the world around us and even the nominally religious appear to have things so much easier. It would be natural to consider dropping your standards or your fervency or your passion in order to gain a bit more of a social foothold in a world where Jesus isn't welcome. That's a then and now problem. 
It would be tempting to adopt a value system that was more socially acceptable or to distance yourself from Christian community in order to keep this Jesus thing as quiet as possible. Do just enough to get in the kingdom, but do nothing to anticipate that. In this setting, some might be, considered, might be considering going back to the comfortable, convenient and legal synagogues where they could keep their head down, they could go along with all the religious things again. It would offer a path of least resistance. But it would also lead to despair as you went along with things you no longer needed, realising they weren't, any valid, weren't valid anymore, they were empty of power. Or worse for these Hellenised Jews turned believers? As they dealt with that temptation, they wouldn't be welcome back there either. They'd be reduced to trying their hand at doing life in a pagan world with nothing godly propelling them. In this city, hundreds of believers are trying to do that right now. And everyone except them can see it's not working. This is the audience of Hebrews. Somewhere in the pagan world where every religious ideal other than Christianity is tolerated and engaged with. Somewhere in the pagan world where being a Christian, the way Jesus described one, believer, follower, learner and lover, will be viewed with suspicion and treated poorly. Somewhere in the pagan world where giving up on faith, at least in public, or giving up on Christian standards, or giving up on Christian community are very real options right now, where throwing in the towel is an option. This is the audience our anonymous writer offers what he calls a short letter of exhortation. And as a letter of exhortation, it's not all that sympathetic. It's not a letter validating their feelings and counselling them through this. It's not offering permission to drop the ball any time things got hard. It's not offering a quiet faith or even a faith practised in the lounge room rather than community. Instead, we have an urgent reminder of the time in history they lived in. And that's a time in history that we share these last days. And we see the sheer glory and power of the faith that all believers have access to. The exhortation offered here causes readers to pick themselves up, make the right choices and stay the course regardless of what they currently saw or felt. When I need godly encouragement, that's what I seek out. And I hope that's how you answered when I asked my second question. Because anything less than that sort of exhortation is a wasted coffee break. With all that going on, we're going to begin exploring this letter today. And I don't want to take a lot of your time today, so we're just going to look at four verses. We understand that despite it having an unknown author, 
and having an unknown audience, it has come to be one of the most theologically rich documents we could ever hold in our hand. And I personally believe Hebrews speaks into our faith journey today as much as it did then, perhaps even more so. So let's look. Hebrews chapter 1. It's on your apps with notes. It's in your hand if you've got a Bible. It's on the screen if you're visiting. Verses 1 to 4. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. The opening statements of a letter. No fancy greetings here. Nothing to give away the author's identity. Just an incredibly eloquent sentence that gets down to deep theological business. And it begins with this massive concept. God spoke. God spoke. The first part of what we read is what the Jews already knew. That the words captured by the prophets of the Old Testament are to be read as God's words. But more importantly, God actually uttered words in the first place. These are Jews being reminded that they had a pretty special thing going on with their God, particularly compared to pagan deities all around them. The God of Israel was not and never was silent. He didn't leave his people guessing and they knew at all times where they stood. The law that governed their nation was spoken to them by God himself. When they were being judged for not keeping that law, it was God himself sending prophets with those words to convey this fact. The way of salvation that would come out of that people was told plainly by God to the people through prophets. Over the many generations of Jewish history and ancestry, God spoke and rose up prophets to write and proclaim the things that he said. God spoke to humanity. And no other religious movement could ever make that claim. The pagan reference points for their deities were carved, crafted, silent images of fancy. As Peter talked about a few weeks ago, images made by man, forming God into a man-made thing.
But the one true God provided a reference point, which was simply his spoken word. And now he has spoken again, not merely with the conduit of a prophet, but we're told here that the voice of God came through the Son. This doesn't render the prophets obsolete, but the voice of God through the Son brings us from a place of promise and pointing to a place of fulfillment of those things. It's not just the case of God saying, that's my boy. As if he was, he, was, he was on earth just to be a messenger boy for his dad. He's not just a conduit of the voice of God. Jesus the Son is the voice of God. This is a part of what's in John's mind when he begins to try to describe the deity of Christ. In John 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. This statement here, Alan Hirsch, one of the great modern theologian guys, calls this the best statement about God we will ever, ever have. So he's God's voice and he is the voice. Jesus is the voice of God here and he he is God being the voice. As we come into this sentence further, we're told of the powerful equality between God and the Son. And he's called the ear of all things. Now, when you and I appoint heirs, it's because we realise how finite a resource we are as people, if we were to be painfully honest. You have heirs to estates and kingdoms and businesses and all these other different things. And we do this as part of our planning should the worst ever happen. If I'm gone, someone else is set up to take it over, right? All these arrangements... All the practice of setting up an heir is all to prepare us and prepare them for our death or our departure. So tell me, what happens when you are an heir of a kingdom but it's impossible for your dad to die? That's where Jesus sits. As a result, he's essentially the possessor and occupier of it all already. To describe Jesus as the heir of all that belongs to an eternal God is a limited human way of trying to describe Jesus as God's equal. To 
Philippians 2.6 speaks of Jesus' earthly ministry where he didn't use his status of equality with God to his own advantage, but he took the form of a servant. He already had it. The scriptures tell us he and God are equal. And the reason the, the Pharisees wanted to stone Jesus on one occasion is because he made himself out to be equal with God in his own statements. And this equality and this voice come together in the next phrase. Through the Son, God made the universe. This came out in John 1 a moment ago as well. Jesus was there at creation, playing an active role. He was part of the creative God doing the work of creation. Genesis 1 tells us that the world was created simply by words spoken. Let there be, and it was. And that God was talking with himself in a plural way as he did that. Let us make the earth. Let us make man in our image. So the son who was promised by the prophets, who was equal to God and every bit as powerful as God and was present and active in creation as well, came and to earth and demonstrated to us who God is. Colossians 1, Paul writes this, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all of creation, for in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together, and He is the head of the body of the church, He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so then everything He might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The Son is the image of the invisible God. That's another phrase also captured by this author in in Hebrews. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and an exact representation or the image of His being. The wording here is rich. If we want to know what the glory and radiance of God looks like, we can do that by looking to the Son. Think about that for a moment, how the main audience of this letter would respond to that. You have believers with strong Jewish heritage. They would know full well the story of God showing himself to Moses and the way Moses freaked out and almost died just seeing the apparent back of God. And now they are being told that the glory of God could now be seen without those dire consequences when they look to the sun. The Greek word used to describe the exact representation or the image of God here and in Colossians is a word that we've actually evolved for our own thing. It's actually character. It's a word that had its origins in ancient Greek and is first referred to in something engraved or stamped. 
we call letters in writing, characters. Because before computers and iPads, they were impressions made on paper. Something stamped. We call actors characters because they show us the form of another person, both in how they look, but what you connect with is more of the story of who the person is. And we connect more when a good character leaves an impression on us. This Greek idea of character and image brings me back to my opening question at the start of our time together. How did you learn what the Queen looked like? Someone said TV earlier. For me, it wasn't anything on TV. We actually went on extended periods of my childhood without TVs because they were pretty expensive things to have around the place. The first good one we had was rented and I was well into primary school. I certainly didn't learn what the, pre, the, what the Queen looked like by reading because I wasn't really that good at it. it wasn't, I didn't actually see a picture of the Queen until I joined Scouts in 1983. As a nine-year-old walking in and there she is on the wall. My first understanding of what the Queen looked like came from my pocket money. More often than not, this is the way most of the Roman Empire learned of the appearance of their emperor also, particularly the outer reaches. Artists would paint, sculptors would sculpt. But the person engraving the mould for the face of coins was commissioned to capture the most accurate character of the emperor the most accurate engraving and stamping of the emperor. What was stamped was the character. In the same way, the audience of Hebrews are being shown that if you want a perfectly accurate idea of the character of God, capturing the fullness of his being, then look to the sun. God engraved and stamped who he was in the person of Christ so that he would be mysteriously be fully human but also be fully God. And God who created and spoke through the sun and air and who engraved and stamped his character into a person in such a way that he would be completely God and completely human at the same time, personally took the matter of purification for sin into his own hands. That's what the death and resurrection of Christ achieved. And even in these few verses, we're only just getting started with that idea. The rest of this letter gives us great detail of how that purification comes out. Leviticus comes out in a big way and its completion will be proven beyond doubt as we keep on reading. 
But for now, this passage points out that it was complete in the Son. And the Son is now seated and ruling with God, already victorious. Even if the world around them is not showing that victory just yet. I'm going to wind up here. I just need to stop with those verses and let us think about that for a bit. Right out of the gate, if anyone in the immediate audience of Hebrews is wondering if their newfound faith is worth the effort and worth holding on to, then these verses offer huge assurances, but also high stakes too. The assurance here is that in Christ, they made the right call and they need to stick to it. He's not just another prophet they're following here. He's the promise. He is the completion of the promises given to the prophets. He's not merely just a man and he's not just like God. The Son is equal heir, the creator, the voice, the glory, the character of the one true God. To follow Christ is to follow God. To receive Christ is to receive God. To call Christ Lord, to place faith in Him, to believe in Him, is to fully acknowledge Him as Almighty God. This was a massive leap for a Jew when all they hoped for was a Messiah of lesser value. When we talk about being greater than the angels next week, that idea will come out further. But it's a big big leap for us too. And I personally find that we don't engage with the idea of Christ as God anywhere near enough. We don't often, I mean, it's a mystery. It's supposed to melt our heads. It's supposed to capture us and go, I can never get my head around that. And you're supposed to be left that way. That's what the Bible calls a mystery. Something we can't fully, completely fathom. And even here, we've got limited sentences, eloquent but limited sentences, trying to give this idea of what, who Jesus is and how he is God. But we do have enough here in this passage to think again about Christ and who he is. Perhaps even set that deeper in our hearts. to really know who he is and not just, hey, Jesus, tell God for me. But Jesus, you are God. You know all things. You are the creator. You're the voice. You're the air. You're my Lord and you are almighty God. Alan Hirsch again. Jesus is the most definitive revelation of God given to humankind. Jesus is the most definitive revelation of God given to mankind. You want to know what God is? Look at Jesus. You know what? We kind of talk about God as this vague thing out there. The world around us looks at God as this 
thing, this entity, this unexplainable entity. And then they get a little bit uncomfortable when we start talking about Jesus. Why do you think that is? Because there's power in that. He's not just another guy that may have said some good things and left again, met an untimely end and left. He is the object of our worship. There's power in the name of Jesus because he's God. Tom Wright, if you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what it means to be human, look at Jesus. If you want to know what lovely is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what grief is, look at Jesus. I love this last sentence. And go on looking until you're not just a spectator, but you're actually part of the drama which has him as a central character. All week, out of everything I've read, this is one of the most beautiful sentences I've read. Go on looking at Jesus until you're not just a spectator, but you're actually part of the drama which has him as a central character. Do you have the faith to go all in with this, with a belief in Jesus like that? When you say, I believe in Jesus, that's what you claim to believe. Do you, have you placed a belief in Christ like that? Or is that a, a reboot button today? Do you have the courage to engage with Jesus our God the way Tom Wright suggests? To look to him in that way. Will you engage afresh with Jesus as God, his full deity? Giving you three massive Bible verses to look at this week. Colossians 1, John 1, Hebrews 1. Start with those. Pull them to bits, phrase by phrase if you need to. I dare you to. And may that enrich you. May that propel you. If you are going, should I? Is this Christian faith worth following? Look at who Jesus is and make your mind up. If he's God, throw everything into Jesus. If he's not, walk away. That's the challenge being said before Hebrews the audience. The ex-Jews who knew God one way and were now told another. There was a lot for them to take in and be confronted with. It was massive stakes if they pursued it. But the author of this letter is deeply convinced that there is no other way but Jesus. And I pray that be your resolve also as we come out of here today. Let's bow in prayer and we'll invite the band up.